0: This is Backstory. I'm Peter Ronoff. They gave up on me, but I've been deaf since I was three, so I didn't listen. This is the Seattle Seahawks' Derek Coleman doing the voiceover for a stirring bit of cinematography. And now I'm here with a lot of fans in the NFL cheering me on. But this is no documentary. It's a commercial for Duracell batteries from the 2014 Super Bowl. Today on Backstory, the ad industry in America, we'll hear how advertisers perfected the art of the soft sell, the catchy jingle, and the association with all American heroes. Plus, ads for Backstory that you asked us to produce. This history is moving fast, people. Don't delay. A history of advertising today on Backstory. Don't go away. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for
1: the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Peter Ronoff. And I'm Ed Ayers. Now, if you're listening to this show on the radio, you probably heard Peter do something a few minutes ago that we in the business refer to as a billboard. It's a one-minute tease, apparently effective, for the rest of the show, complete with highlights, some big questions for the hour, some catchy music, and it's basically an attempt to razzle-dazzle you into sticking with us through the news break. Well, that radio billboard has its roots in the pre-radio age. And like a lot of what we talk about on Backstory, it dates back to the last few decades
0: of the 19th century.
2: You know, there are banners, there are posters for circuses and other
0: celebrations. This is Kathy Gutis, a historian in California who has written about advertising's early days. A lot of it centered on East Coast cities, but had a certain Wild West sensibility to it. Picture roving wagons covered with enormous ads, itinerant men with sandwich boards or ads in their hats, gangs of bill posters prowling in the streets with buckets of wheat paste and broadsides announcing all manner of products and events. Everywhere you looked, Gouda says, somebody would be trying to razzle-dazzle you into seeing the benefits of what they had to sell.
2: You might have a series of text-based handbills or theater programs. They look like theater programs, and they're slathered on the exteriors of the buildings at street level. But then as you sort of almost look up the side of the building, the ads become larger and more pictorial until you get to the top of the building where an electrically illuminated ad is outlined. There's an image, there are words spelled out, and there's revolving color that, you know, just sort of creates an entire cityscape of commerce.
1: Now, it does make sense that advertisers in this era would focus on cities because dense populations meant that you got the most bang for your advertising buck. But Gouda says there were countryscapes of commerce as well.
2: Right. There's actually a description of, you know, a few people who really prided themselves on, you know, going into remote areas with their waders on um, and painting, you know, on a rock. So a train that might be passing by would have this perfect, you know, vision of it.
1: Whether they were painted on big illuminated signs in the city, screaming at passing trains from trees and rocks in the country, or filling the space between articles in local newspapers, one type of ad appeared everywhere. Ads for patent medicines.
2: You'd learn of something like Buchu, which was recommended for everything from syphilis to rheumatism. Or you might have seen Jones Tonic. A sure cure for paralysis, vertigo, insomnia, Jim <laughs> jams. Uh, don't ask me what gym jams were.
0: If the conditions these so called medicines were curing seemed mysterious, their ingredients were even more so. Sometimes these potions would contain opium, morphine. More often, they would contain potent doses of grain and alcohol. One manufacturer boasted that, I'm quoting, I can advertise dishwater and sell it just as well as an article of merit. It is all in the advertising. On the back of this advertising,
1: patent medicine sales climbed from a total of around $3.5 million before the Civil War to $75 million by the turn of the century. And there are two ways of looking at this. On the one hand... Patent medicines put advertising on the map and showed that advertising in itself could be a profitable business. A lot of the early ad agents got their starts hawking patent medicine ads to newspaper and magazine printers. But on the other hand, the shadiness of the whole patent medicine enterprise kind of tarred advertising and gave it a bad name. It would take a whole new generation of advertisers with a whole new approach to advertising to really turn that story around.
3: Across America this weekend, a lot of people are talking about football. But as there always is on Super Bowl Sunday, there is just as much excitement, if not more, about what's taking place off the field in the interstices of the big game, the advertising. So today on the show, we're looking at advertising's history. How did advertising move from the margins of respectability to the $180 billion industry that it is today? And why is it... That Americans today don't just tolerate advertising's ubiquity, they actually celebrate it.
1: We'll begin where we left off in the last couple of decades of the 19th century. It was then that a handful of ad middlemen started making a name for themselves as ad agents who could be trusted— mm. Now, these weren't the fly-by-night guys of a few years earlier, known for extorting as much as possible from publishers and advertisers alike. These were guys with solid circulation figures, clear fee structures, and standards on what they would and wouldn't sell. So patent medicines were out, and things like, well, soap were in. Okay? Oh, yeah. So, guys, I've, I've got a magazine <laughs> ad from this period that I want to share with you. It's for pears the famous English complexion soap, Mm. and features the portrait of Henry Ward Beecher, a kind of rock star preacher of the day with a a kind of a mullet, actually, along with a supposed (laughs) quotation from Beecher extolling the virtues of this wonderful soap. Mm. And it's typical of a lot of what was coming out of these early ad agencies— Places like N.W. Air and Son and J. Walter Thompson were discovering that they were in the business of selling trust. And their ads were all about convincing consumers that these products were trustworthy. Uh-huh, okay. right. So you have that image in your head. Yep. Now consider yep. this one. It's also a soap ad, Woodbury soap, but it's from a few decades later, 1917 to be exact. Mm-hmm. It's in full color, Mm. a young woman lounges in a revealing dress, a handsome man in a suit leans over her, he's clasping her hand and kissing her neck, the tagline running across the top of the page is simple, a skin you love to touch. So this seems pretty racy for 1911.
4: Pretty sexy, right?
1: Yeah, really?
4: (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, some more conservative magazines wouldn't take this ad. This is
1: Kathleen Franz. She's a historian who worked on a recent Smithsonian exhibit about the history of advertising. When I spoke to her, she pointed out that there's something besides the raciness of the second ad that makes it groundbreaking. And that there's hardly anything in the ad about soap itself.
4: One of the things about the creator of this ad and why it's such a revolutionary ad is that it is moving very quickly into what the product can do for the consumer and how it will change their life. Uh It puts the product at the bottom of the ad, not central to the ad. It gives you a view of the consumer, which is you, right? I mean, this is completely aspirational. The product can bridge that gap between your working class status or your lower middle class status and the achievement of an American dream, which here is very represented by not only the beautiful clothing and the kind of wealth that that exudes, but also this kind of sexiness. Um, The message that the ad wants to give to you and wants you to believe in is that if you use this soap, you'll be a more attractive person.
1: So who's behind this ad? It seems to me it's persuasive even 100 years later. I believe that she does attract men. So uh, <laughs> who, who was the mastermind that realized that this is the direction advertising should take?
4: Well, it was a woman named Helen Lansdowne a Reaser. There are women in advertising in this period. They are helping huh. shape the new messaging that advertising is putting out, this move really from telling you again about the product and what the product is and moving it to a more emotional appeal, and that really sets modern advertising. So the interesting thing about Helen Reeser is really that she's at the top of the company. She's running the offices of J. Walter Thompson, one of the largest advertising agencies in the world, with her husband Stanley. She's um, really the creative side of the house, and he's doing the business side. And she's cultivating this sort of new type of emotional-based advertising.
1: I am struck by the fact that there would be a place for women in this as there had not been a place for women in any kind of industry before. So how do you explain that, Kathleen?
4: I think women knew how to reach other women, and the adver- the male advertisers who are running these companies begin to understand that, especially in this period. Um, and so, you know, J. Walter Thompson really had built its reputation on advertising in women's magazines. They knew that women were the primary consumers of most products, especially for the household, so soaps, things that are being mass-produced at this time. And they are responding to this emotional appeal. And, you know, Helen Lansdowne Reeser, she tailors the advertising to them. She's saying it's okay for women to be sexy and that products can help with that. And, you know, the sales numbers coming back is that it reportedly increased sales of this soap a thousand percent. (laughs) So when you have the marketing data back to say that these kinds of very women-centered approaches are working, it's all the more reason to trust the women who are writing the ads.
1: Kathleen Franz is a historian at American University and one of the curators of a recent Smithsonian exhibition on the history of advertising in America. Heard a little bit about the early days of the advertising industry in the first couple of decades of the 20th century. We're going to pick up our story now in the 1920s, the point at which the industry hit the road.
0: In the 1920s, Americans were falling in love with their cars. Tens of millions of them were taking to the roads, and where motorists went, billboards quickly followed. Driving down the highway, Americans would see row after row of horizontally spanning billboards, just like we might see today. Many of them were full of color and illuminated by electric lighting, but that's not all. The roadsides were also blanketed in a number of smaller and less professional ads tacked up on trees and poles. It was all largely unregulated. Companies and the ad agents working for them could put up billboards wherever landowners would rent them space. Before long, the roadsides were crowded with commerce.
3: Historian Kathy Goodis, who we heard from at the top of today's show, has written about this early efflorescence of outdoor advertising and about the opposition that grew up alongside it. She told me that women were very much at the forefront of the movement that worked for decades to do away with these billboards.
2: I think it was in part springing from the municipal housekeeping movement of an earlier period. This idea that you know women were responsible for civilizing the home, and also um, had a knowledge of, of of beauty that you know, um, and that they were somehow going to be keepers of the landscape too. And so, so um, who was supporting billboards? Well, the billboard boys, of course. <laughs> boys, billboard boys. Well, you know, the, you know the, the women like to call them varyingly the boys of the barons. I love the idea of the barons because it suggests that they are, you know, um, colonizing the landscape, taking it over yeah. with commercial advertising. And, you know, they are. I mean, that's the goal. It's partly because the industry becomes big and incorporates nationally and has a lobbying arm. It's called the Outdoor Advertising Association of America. It sounds, and they so, represent, pa- it sounds yeah. so pastoral. <sighs> Oh, it's so pastoral. It's not billboards, right? It's not litter on a stick. It's outdoor no. advertising. Litter on a
3: stick. All right. So what do the uh, barons call the women? I don't want to know the locker room term, but what do they call them in public?
2: The language that they use persistently is incredibly gendered. They are these flower-sniffing-asthetes <laughs> with no concern. right? Flower-sniffing, no, concern. Sniffing, huh? no oh, less. Oh, yeah. Because you know this this idea that they're as thetes with no conception of the financial ramifications of being able to advertise across the American landscape.
3: Well, how did these uh, flower sniffing ladies, uh, so called, what do they bring to the table? How do they fight these guys who were national industry?
2: They basically harnessed their powers through women's clubs and the garden clubs. And so, for instance, there's one woman named Elizabeth Lawton who is so impressive. She organizes a group called the National Roadside Council and put it this way The outdoor industry disliked her to the extent that when I went through their files, I found her information in a file that was labeled Nuisances Abated, <laughs> and on the top was her obituary. So you're not you're not suggesting you're not suggesting
3: <laughs> foul play,
2: are you? No foul play. I really don't think there was foul play, but I okay. think she was just so annoying. <laughs> she annoyed them to no end. The letter writing campaigns were out of control. Letters to the editor, you know, people, you know, they're mostly middle-class women who, you know, were writing a lot of letters.
3: And and what did these what did these women want? Did they want advertising to go away? I mean, what was their goal?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that would have been an ideal. What they were looking at, though, we have to remember, is that, you know, they were driving along a road, and, you know, the highways were constructed in part as touristic landscapes. And what what do you find when you go out, you know, into the countryside? You see billboard alleys that are lining the highways, endlessly repeating, you know, one after another— oftentimes in full color, dramatic, spectacular view with lights um, illuminating them if you were in a major city or on your way into a major city. And so I think that they really were amazing spectacles for people who embraced commerce. But for the Scenic Sisters, you know, this was not a sense of, um, you know, of a technologically sublime of, of commerce, right? It was that the roadside vista is not this public space, is not open to democratic access because billboards are turning into a physical and a conceptual blight. So it's they becoming a commercial. It's a
3: commercialized space.
2: Yeah, it's a commercialized space, but it's more than that. I think it's more than that. I think it's also that they're blocking the notion that the American landscape is held commonly, that it doesn't have property borders, that it's free to all, and and that's a conception of the view, mm-hmm. the view from the road, right? That we should all have access to that untrammeled view. It should not be sullied by commerce.
3: This battle this goes on for decades of course does the introduction of the interstate highway act in the 50s make a difference
2: oh it makes a huge difference once the federal interstate act is passed in 1956 the idea is that is this you know 25 billion dollar investment going to be lined with commerce and who's going to be paying for that so as legislators are organizing around the federal Interstate Act, reformers are seeking to ensure that that whole expressway system, coast to coast, north to south, is going to be protected from billboard advertising. So through the 50s, they you know continue their activities, and then once Lyndon Johnson becomes president and... Despite the fact that he himself had advertised in his campaigns using billboards, <laughs> um, he, came, he comes forward as being on their side, in part because his wife, Lady Bird, is really interested in, in, in beautification. And, you know, she even, you know, pushes him to call the U.S. Secretary of Commerce in 1964 to tell him to do something to clean up the roadside. Um,
3: I remember that.
2: Interestingly, we see the gender game being played out again, even at that moment. I mean, it starts when Johnson says, "You know, I I, I love that woman," referring to his wife, and she wants that highway beautification act. <laughs> By God, we're going to get it for her. And and indeed, <laughs> he didn't he, call her his, the little lady, did he? he? He 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 said, "You know, I love that woman." <laughs> no, he doesn't say a little lady. He might as well have. Um, <laughs> no, so so she begins to advocate, and and so he begins to meet with you know people to make this happen so they form some task forces on natural beauty and from there begin to craft the language that will ultimately be passed in 1965 as the highway beautification act
3: and does it work
2: what finally passes as the highway beautification act the reformers don't see as a triumph they see it as a failure in many ways because it doesn't just outright ban billboards. It limits them, it restricts them. More than that, for the billboards that were there, the federal government and state governments are to pay the owners of the billboards to remove them. All right, and so what they see is that, you know, this is going to be a continuing battle in which governmental and legislative forces favor industry. But, you know, I have to say that in... Looking at photographs and sort of comparing what the landscape scenes look like, it, it's hard not to see it as actually having played a significant role that's interesting in a lot of ways because instead of a lot of little signs lining the highways or the interstates as you know, we forming these corridors... we see very big
3: ones now, we
2: see really big ones, yeah. And, and so, it, it becomes for me, I think I see it as metaphorical for the industry at large. The industry itself consolidates the whole advertising industry, not just outdoor advertising. It consolidates. It becomes something huge and unavoidable and omniscient, omnipresent. And I say both of those words for a reason. Advertisers now can chart where we are, where we move, um, what our preferences might be, and tailor their advertisements to us. And so the consolidation of space changes the look but it doesn't necessarily change the principle of advertising in public space mm. and colonizing that space through mm. commerce.
3: Kathy, I just have to ask, when your book came out, were you tempted to advertise it on a big billboard?
2: Given another chance, I think I might advertise my book on a billboard.
3: <laughs> okay, well, thank you for joining us on Backstory today.
2: Thank you for having me.
5: Doodle, do 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 Smile
0: and it's in
3: the picture on the billboard in the field near the big old highway. Catherine Gudis is a historian at the University of California, Riverside. She's the author of Byways, Billboards, Automobiles, and the American Cultural Landscape. Peter, Ed, mm. where did the advertising that I would recognize as advertising today, where, where did that come from? That would get you to buy something,
1: exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. Well, that to be some real good advertising. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I would say that uh, you'd be surprised to think that I, it happened in the period that I specialize in. No, kidding. <laughs> but here's what I would mean by that. And I think the advertising we would recognize as advertising is image-rich, right? Mm-hmm. It is mass-produced. Yep. It is building a brand. Um, And I think that really evolves over the 19th century along with newspapers that can spread all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you think about things like ivory soap. Uh, They have the image that they still use today. And they would have a slogan. And the other things that they would have would be testimonials, you know, because you're trying to build a personal connection between the consumer and a mass-produced good. So what's an example
3: of a testimony? What kind of person would offer that?
1: You know— When it came time to bathe my new baby, I wondered where I could find a soap that I knew would be safe for her gentle skin. Mm. And I remember oh. hearing that ivory was 99.4% pure.
3: I got my credit used card I- out already. Exactly. Really <laughs> we
1: don't take credit cards in the 19th century. <laughs> oh, I appreciate the thought. And after I bathed my baby, she smelled so good. And I knew that I would buy ivory soap again. I hope you will too. So that's my belief of what advertising that we would recognize as our own uh-huh. emerges. And that really takes form in the, in the late 19th century, which makes me wonder how people actually bought stuff before that,
0: you know? <laughs> I want to tell you, they did, uh, and they did in a big way. And I think the real challenge for us is to understand what it was that would get the attention of consumers, because I think that's what advertising is really yes. about, reaching out from producer to consumer or from merchandiser to uh, the ultimate user. And uh, that begins, well, you might say from the beginning of time. But in America, I think what really is determinative is the spread of print uh, because uh, in a traditional culture where everybody knows everybody else and uh, you know where you're going to get your horseshoes, you know where you're going to get your, your flower, in a customary world of these kind of intimate transactions, advertising is unnecessary. But what happens when you have long distances between the producer and the consumer? What happens in urban centers like Philadelphia is that you have, thanks to print— And all the ways that print can uh, indicate to consumers what's available, simply listing things. What I want to communicate to you guys is the sheer excitement of knowing what's in a shop. So you're focusing on the medium that Ed kind of took for granted. Yeah, that's right. And this is what I defy you to do is to try to imagine how reading a list of things could it just rock your world?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I remember the other early days of the internet. Peter, it wasn't <laughs> that, was that, was that hard to thing, imagine. Wasn't
0: it? And who's placing these so-called ads? Okay, you got the problem of inventory and turnover, and you wait a long time to get a shipment of tea uh, from Bohia or from so wherever it is. you're
3: talking about importers. Yeah,
0: we're basically talking about importers yeah. because uh, day-to-day needs are satisfied in local markets. Uh, but the cutting edge, the leading edge of the market, what becomes the market revolution, the leading edge of consumption, uh, that's with imports. So it could be something like tea. It would be porcelain. Uh, it could be textiles. Uh, there are any number of things. So people would see a list
3: of China
0: yeah. and, a- and get really worked up about it. the important thing to keep in mind, again, something we take for granted mm-hmm is to have advertising, you have to have literacy. Now, you'd say it's a broad literacy that's visual as well as conventional literacy, but the American population is the most literate in the world with the possible exception of Sweden. Right, because they really
3: couldn't produce the kind of images that Ed might have in the late 19th century.
0: These really were words. You know, the image that would only work in a local market is a one-off, a painting uh, that would right. hang in front of a tavern or something like that, and that's that's not to, that's important. I, yeah, but I I want to emphasize the way that you can read into a word or a list of things pictures of goods. I would say a word is worth a thousand pictures in this period. You know, we 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 flip it around in the modern period to talk about all you can learn from a picture. That's what really excites the desire of consumers is to know what they can get. And did they? buy more than they should have? Well, of course. Or is course,
3: that just a 20th century thing? Of
0: course, uh, you talked about credit cards. We don't have those, uh, but we have credit and we have bankruptcies galore. So merchants are, are eager to enable purchasing, but in order to get the whole thing going, to get the machinery working, you've got to make the fundamental connection. You have It's an information problem. It's getting information to consumers about what's on offer.
1: So, Brian, you ask, you know, where advertising as we know it comes from. Uh, it's, they have surprisingly deep roots. Mm-hmm. But it strikes me that the 20th century is in many ways kind of recycling things that we already knew from the 18th and 19th <laughs> century, right, is that people buy because of real or imagined personal connections to the product. You know, and back in Peter's time, it's the shopkeepers who can tell you, hey, I've got these great things, you'd really want to buy this cloth. Or in my time, the testimonials whispering to you from the pages of the newspaper. <laughs> it strikes me that radio, television, movies – built upon that, but maybe don't invent that much that's new. For the past few weeks, we've been inviting your ideas for advertising styles from the past that we might draw on to create ads for our own program. So we got a lot of great suggestions, and after blowing through our multi-million dollar advertising (laughs) budget, we are going to share with you today two of the ads that we decided to go ahead and produce. The first was inspired by a request from listener Jim Micah in Ithaca, New York.
6: Hi there, Backstory. Backstory.
5: My suggestion for an ad to promote your show would be something from the hard-hitting 70s when we had all those fabulous ads for American cars.
0: Let us put you in a brand
5: new American moment of history.
1: Attention history fans in Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, and all across America. Drive away in a brand new episode of Backstory today. We've got stories for all your history needs. Wanna hear about fat little presidents? We got John Adams. You want 19th century ladies who get stuff done? No problem. Need some pork in your diet? We got the Bay of Freaking Pigs. So put those headphones on today. 0% down, 0% financing, and monthly payments of no pennies on the dollar. Backstory. Find us on your local radio station, iTunes, SoundCloud, and always online at BackstoryRadio.org. This history's moving fast, people. Don't delay. Have you seen? Have you tried Wheaties? They're whole wheat with all of the brand. That, according to General Mills, was the first ever commercial jingle broadcast in America. It went out over Minneapolis airwaves on Christmas Eve 1926. And since it seemed to boost sales locally, company execs made the song the headliner of a national campaign in a desperate attempt to save a dying brand. Apparently it worked. Wheaties' sales skyrocketed. And ever since, the story goes, jingles have been used to sell everything from used cars to community colleges. Here's a more recent jingle with a little more, shall we say, stickiness than that Wheaties tune had.
6: One, two.
1: The long running Kit Kat candy jingle premiered in 1988, and since then, it has achieved many millions of times over what every jingle is created to do get stuck in your head, on loop, ad infinitum.
5: Break me off a piece of that Kit
3: Kat bar! This is Michael Levine, a musician in LA, and he's the one who's responsible for this insidious earworm of a jingle. Over the course of his career, Levine has composed music for more than 1,500 ads. But I gotta tell you that no ad enjoyed more success than that darn Kit Kat tune. So I had to ask him, how did he come up with that jingle in the first place?
5: Well, I got a call from Chris McHale, who was the music producer at Doyle Dane Burnback, who was the advertising agency handling the Kit Kat account um, for Hershey. And they already had a campaign they were in love with, and they had spent a fortune on it and got all sorts of famous people to sing on it and this and that, but they needed what is called a cannon fodder campaign. They needed something (laughs) that the client could reject. So they assigned uh, their lowest-ranking copywriter and their lowest-ranking music supplier, me, their lowest-ranking copywriter being Ken Schuldman, to come up with something uh, for which they were going to pay us so little money that I didn't even have money to hire jingle singers. But, but first of all, in terms of how it came about, is Ken had written a whole lot of lyrics, including, give me a break, give me a break, break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar, and the bridge of the song. And I had it in my hand. We talked a little bit about direction. And I, I got into the elevator, and um, and by the time I was on the first floor, I pretty much had the song.
3: Where did you start?
5: Uh, at the, I believe it was the third floor. Was <laughs> oh, where two Chris's whole floors was. for Kit Kat. So yeah, it was a slow elevator. <laughs> so at any rate, we had so little money that we ended up uh, Chris and um, his assistant Joe Joe Barone and I sang the demo, um, and the client loved it. And one thing led to another. It's it, it, it's it's a, a many-faceted road after that, but the, but the fallout of it was that I ended up singing on the commercials for many years. And because of the way that the Screen Actors Guild contracts are structured, which is how people who sing on television commercials are mm-hmm. on side contracts, I actually made more money as a singer than as the composer. <laughs>
3: well, I'm going to get metaphysical here. What's your theory about what makes an earworm? Well,
5: you know I, I really like what Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this um, and he uh, alluded to a kind of wrongness it's the idea that there's something that is incomplete or out of place and your mind can't quite let it sit if something is really just perfectly tidy and ordered it's done fine you your brain goes on to the next thing mm-hmm. to get all musico technical on you the the First phrase is a pentatonic melody. Give me a break. Uh That scale, ascending, has this very bright, childish character. But then the very next note is, give me a break. That is what musicians would call the dominant seventh or the flat seventh. And it's kind of a dark note. It comes from the blues. And a lot of the contradiction that's embodied in blues and jazz comes from this... Um, mixture of dark and light. So the jingle itself has a
3: a bit of yin and yang in it. Absolutely. And I think that most of the great ones do. Very interesting. Well, you just showed off your chops as a serious composer and you've also worked in film and television. Uh, Does it ever bug you that some people know you as the guy who wrote the Kit Kat jingle? no, i'm I'm actually quite proud of
5: this, and uh, I think that oftentimes there's this kind of artificial division between commerce and art. And uh, I've always felt very comfortable in both worlds and or maybe they really aren't different worlds. Uh, as an example, um, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote this stack full of cantatas that are just, Beautiful, some of our greatest musical heritage, and he wrote them because he had a job. He was a a a Kapellmeister, that's a choir director, and he had to come up with new material. So that was what he was getting paid to Mm do. And now I'm not saying the Kit Kat Jingle is, you know, on par with, you know, (laughs) Bach, but um, I'm as proud of it as I am of the. Serious pieces I've written, because it's still being used nearly 30 years after it was written. Uh, I mean, one of the things they told me back in the day was they actually had to build another plant to make
3: more Kit Kats.
5: Wow! (laughs) So clearly it touched a lot of people.
3: Michael Levine is the composer of the long-running Give Me a Break Kit Kat jingle. He spoke to us from his studio in L.A., and before he said goodbye, he told us, that he had a little surprise for us. Now, you'll recall, a little earlier in the show, we mentioned that we've been soliciting listener input for the production of historic-sounding backstory ads. Well, it turns out that Michael Levine had something ready for the cause, something that, to be perfectly honest, we'd be hard-pressed to beat.
5: When my history is feeling kind of shallow I go get me more days of your From own affairs and Ballo I get back to my backstory Back to my backstory story. But wait, wait, don't tell me It just ain't fair That all things considered Gets so much fresh air I've been there I done that with Brian Lair I gotta get back to my back.
3: In 1928, the American Tobacco Company had a problem. Their Lucky Strike brand of cigarettes was one of the fastest-growing in the United States, but there was one totally untapped corner of the market, women. Smoking at this time was still seen as a manly activity. Many would have associated it with soldiers on the front lines of World War I, for instance. Women lighting up cigarettes... That was
0: relatively unheard of. And socially, it was certainly taboo. To break this taboo, American tobacco turned to a man named Edward Bernays. He was part ad man, part PR guy, and all ego. In the 20s, Bernays had revolutionized the way products were sold in America. Instead of direct advertising, he used techniques lifted from his uncle, Sigmund Freud, to tap into the underlying reasons people had for making the choices they did. So when publishers, for instance, came to him to up their book sales, he did more than just place ads in newspapers. He convinced the leading architects of American homes to build bookshelves into the walls.
7: He figured a vacuum needs to be filled. And if you had bookshelves in a home, you weren't going to fill it with cereal boxes. You were going to fill it with books.
3: This is author Larry Tye who wrote a biography of Bernays. He says Bernays banked on Americans' desire to impress their friends with all the books they owned, even if they had never cracked open any of those books on their shelves. The result was huge sales for publishers. So he took a very basic behavior
7: and he transformed it to the point where every time I'm in someone's home now and I see a
3: built-in bookshelf, I think, that is Eddie Bernays. American tobacco most likely knew it would take this sort of -of outside-of-the-box thinking to reshape Americans' associations with smoking. And Bernays delivered the goods. His first step was to enlist medical professionals. They gave him quotes attesting to the health benefits of smoking, particularly that it made women thinner. Then Bernays pushed those quotes to reporters. But when I sat down with Ty, he told me that journalists and doctors weren't the only ones that Bernays targeted in 1928.
7: He convinced a guy, a photographer named Nicholas Murray, to ask other photographers and artists to sing the praises of the thin. And Murray said, I've come to the conclusion that the slender woman who, combining suppleness and grace with slenderness who instead of overeating sweets and desserts, lights a cigarette, has created a whole new standard of female loveliness. And Bernays actually turned that into a slogan, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. <laughs> and by doing that, he was tapping into people who he knew helped set the trends in America. So in this case, it was a photographer. Uh-huh. In other cases, it was nutritionists and health experts. But to me the most symbolically wonderful and the most poetic of the ways he went to work was he decided to enlist some of the most extraordinary debutantes in New York society and got these women to sign up for what they thought was striking a blow, not for smoking cigarettes, but for women's liberation. Hmm. On Easter Sunday, marching down America's Boulevard, which was Fifth Avenue, he got them to light up what he called their torches of freedom. So (laughs) Easter Sunday, Fifth Avenue, America's leading debutantes lighting up their torches of freedom.
3: Brilliant. But, you know, what if some competitor, some knockoff brand is capitalizing on all his good work, some competing tobacco company?
7: They did, but he increased sales enough for the whole market and the people who were hiring him already had the lion's share of any market he was going into, um, that it worked for them. Um, but Bernays actually decided that many women weren't smoking Luckies because the green package with the red bullseye clashed with their favorite clothing. <laughs> this was an extraordinary notion in two ways. One, that the choice of a cigarette would depend on how it went with your clothing was extraordinary enough. More chutzpah, was the notion that he could actually change the taste of women in terms of the color they preferred. And he proceeded <laughs> to do just that.
3: Unbelievable.
7: With lucky strikes, he decided that they would go best if the color green, if women were wearing green, and he helped make green the fashion color of the year. He could change people's taste in everything from what they ate to what they wore, and he used every technique that he ever tried in any other format to get women smoking cigarettes.
3: To stand up for Bernays, as as I recall, he made the case that more propaganda, which in in those days, in fairness, really meant information, um, would lead to more informed debate. In other words, you know, both sides could have at it. I remember those poor candy makers. They weren't happy about the Slim is Better campaign. And If I'm not mistaken, Bernays' attitude when they struck back at him was, hey, this is good. This just creates more free publicity. So you bring up a really
7: important point. Bernays' legacy was the best and the worst of what public relations and propaganda can be. The best was getting more information out there, educating the public. He really did believe in an informed public. The worst was that he didn't want to inform that public with really straight information. (laughs) He decided to educate the public with only the selected information that benefited his clients.
3: Did he use his products? Did Bernays smoke?
7: He had never been tempted to smoke himself, but at the very moment when he was having women march down Fifth Avenue with their torches of freedom, he was telling his young daughters at home when they saw their mother smoking a cigarette, to try to take the pack of cigarettes and, as he said, break them in half like they were brittle bones and flush them down the toilet. So 50 years later, when he went to work for the American Lung Association trying to wean women off the habit he had created, he said to America, basically, if I had known how dangerous this product was, I would never have helped create the addiction to it. That would have been very convincing if he hadn't left behind in the Library of Congress all his own records showing just how he did know. Tragically, he ignored, and didn't just ignore, covered up the evidence. And tragically, we saw the result as women's rates of lung cancer in America started to catch up to men. At the same time, their rates of buying products from American tobacco was catching up to men. The question to me is, why would he... Create these kinds of illusions and misapprehensions about what he was doing, and then leave all the papers that proved that he was lying to the Library of Congress where someday somebody would look at them. And my only answer to that is that he was old enough when he left the papers, and there were so many of them that he might not have been aware of just
3: how damning his own evidence was on his own lying. Or perhaps he was even prouder of his ability to manipulate than of his moral compass.
7: I didn't think anybody could be more cynical about Eddie than I am, but I think that um, you could absolutely be right.
3: Well, Larry, thank you for unspinning uh, this truly complex figure in American history for us. It's been great to be with you. Thank you. Larry Ty is the author of The Father of Spin, Edward L. Bernays and the Birth of Public Relations.
2: My name is Cameron, I'm calling from
6: Regina, Saskatchewan, and I'd love to see an ad in the style of a mid-century cigarette ad, including health advice from a doctor about the positive benefits of uh, listening to Backstory. Bye. Hello, folks.
1: Has the modern world become overwhelming? Are the choices in podcasts and radio boggling your mind? Making your head hurt? Well, the wonders of modern science can address that. I'm in the lab here with Dr. Kenneth Johnson. Dr. Johnson, what have you been
7: working on? Well, using the power of modern science, we have been able to extract white noise and confusion away from audio.
6: I do hate white noise and
7: confusion. I simply don't have time to consider all things. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, now we have an audio condenser we call the Contextor, so you get more background and a deeper knowledge without all the junk. The product is a smoother, clearer sound that's healthier for you. We call it
1: Backstory.
6: Backstory.
1: I like the sound of that. Say, let me have a taste. Oh, that is smoother on the ears. Is it really true that Backstory will make you smarter and thinner using this Contextor? Oh, yes. Medical studies have proven it. Well, that's all I need to know. So remember, folks, for a deeper, smoother, and clearer take on life, use Backstory on your local public radio station or wherever you get your podcasts. Our final story today is less about selling a product and more about generating support for an idea. Put another way, it's about public relations. Public relations for space travel. That's one small step for man,
6: one giant leap for man.
1: This, of course, is audio from Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's first stroll on the moon, July 20th, 1969. Many of us remember that date. What we don't tend to remember as well is how rapidly the space program took shape. As late as 1949, a Gallup poll found that only 15% of Americans thought it possible that humans would set foot on the moon by the end of the century.
3: The program that made space travel a reality depended on getting Americans on board with the idea that, well, it could be a reality. And that's where PR came in. Richard Jurek is the co-author of a new book called Marketing the Moon. He says that the concept of manned space travel, long a subject of science fiction, made its debut in the nonfiction media in 1952. That's when Collier's magazine launched a major series of graphically illustrated articles by scientists, making the case that space travel was just around the corner.
6: After the Collier's publication, support Instantly jumped up to
1: 38%. The first article in the Collier series was written by a distinguished rocket scientist named Werner von Braun, at that time in the
6: employ of the U.S. military. He quickly became something of a media darling. And then in 1955, uh, von Braun partnered with Walt Disney, of all people, who was launching uh, his Disneyland television show on TV. The very first episode was called Man in Space, and like the
1: Collier's articles, made the case that space travel was well within our grasp.
0: Here to introduce you to this new series is Walt Disney. One of a man's oldest dreams has been the desire for space travel, to travel to other worlds. Until recently, this seemed to be an impossibility. But great new discoveries have brought us to the threshold of a new frontier.
6: And frontier Eisenhower saw this, and the space. next day asked for a copy and showed it to everyone in the Pentagon, and just two months later said that we will launch our first satellite in 57. In 1958, NASA was formed. And senators even thanked Disney on the floor of the Senate for what he helped to do to convince the politicians, the military, and the American public to start an ambitious space program which eventually led us going to the moon.
3: If public relations was key to launching NASA in the late 50s, It remained central to the agency's operations once it was airborne. Today, says Jurek, it's easy to take for granted. But considering the military backgrounds of many in the program, it could just as easily have been that the Apollo program took shape in secret.
6: Under the military program, and many of the folks involved in NASA were on loan from the military, you could not discuss a project until there was what was called fire in the tail, until the rocket was launching in the air. NASA Public Affairs, uh, starting from Walter T. Bonney, the first head of public affairs, all the way through Julian Scheer, who ran it during the Apollo program. They were all ex-journalists who were deeply committed to the open program and who pushed to go beyond fire in the tail so that when Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon, we saw it live and with no delay. Compared to the closed military program of space travel in the Soviet Union and to what the U.S. program was just a few short years before, it was a phenomenal achievement.
1: The pinnacle of NASA's public relations efforts was without a doubt the live, televised broadcast from the Apollo missions. Some 3,000 journalists run hand at Cape Canaveral for the launch of Armstrong's mission and NASA made a point of providing support for all of them. But had it not been for the insistence of the PR guys, Jurek says, all of those historic moments could very easily have gone unrecorded.
6: Back in the 60s, cameras were huge, they were heavy, and the astronauts themselves, many of them, didn't want cameras aboard because when you had three-person crews going on board, the commander didn't want his crew, quote-unquote, performing for the cameras but focused on the mission. And so there was this huge internal debate that went on between public affairs, Washington, the astronauts and others, and thankfully television won out.
0: Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon. Oh, thank you, television, for letting us watch this one. This something. 240 miles, 1,000 miles out there
3: on the moon, and we're seeing this. 94% of Americans with a TV set watched at least part of the Apollo 11 broadcast in July of 1969. And never was public support for the space program higher. For the first and only time in the 1960s, a majority of Americans polled believe the lunar program was worth its enormous cost. But even as Armstrong and Aldrin were taking their first steps on the moon's surface, NASA was already facing budget cuts and layoffs. And it didn't take long before public support for the program
6: started to wane as well. The moment Buzz Aldrin declared it a magnificent desolation, and the moment the astronauts brought back just a bag of rocks— There was no life. There were no precious metals. We couldn't mine it for oil. When we discovered that the biggest thing was the rarity and the fragility of the Earth, we started to look inward.
3: The idea of a return trip to this dead rock became a tougher and tougher sell. And yet, at the very same time that overall
1: support for the space program was waning, there was one group of Americans who saw
6: it as a winning proposition, one that was worth every cent. Advertisers. Was a program that every brand wanted to be associated with. Even if you had nothing to do with the space program, you wanted to imply it.
3: When I volunteered for moon duty, they said I could have anything I wanted. So here I am, alone
2: with Tricks, the corn cereal with fruit flavored goodness.
6: I mean, you look at something as innocuous and iconic as something like Tang. The astronauts do some things you do.
1: In space, they drank Tang, they mixed it like this in a zero G pouch. Because with
0: no gravity, it would fly all over.
6: Back in the day, Tang was kind of a failed product for General Foods. And it was only after it became known through uh, General Foods' marketing of Tang as a space food that it became a runaway bestseller.
1: Tang, chosen for the Gemini astronauts.
6: Have a blast.
1: Have some Tang. Tang and Trix clearly benefited from their association with NASA, but Jurek points out that food manufacturers weren't the only ones hitching themselves to the moon missions.
6: You know, the Boeings and the Raytheons of the world who, let's face it, were caught up in the Vietnam War, and it's kind of hard to be advertising your great missile that might be killing somebody. But it's a lot easier to advertise your technological prowess when you're getting people to the moon and taking on a peaceful effort uh, with the technology that you're creating and putting out into the marketplace.
3: Half a century on from the first lunar landing, three in four Americans have a favorable view of NASA. Nearly two-thirds of us believe astronauts will have landed on Mars by 2050. Yet, most of us still don't want to pay what it would cost to get them there, and funding for space exploration continues to be cut.
1: But the vision championed by NASA's early public affairs department of an open, very visible space program has flourished in the social media age. Astronauts in the International Space Station point cameras at themselves.
4: A lot of people ask me how I wash my hair in space, and I thought I'd, I'd show you how I do it.
1: At their food. So in space, normally, we just eat the asparagus, and then we eat the grits and keep things simple. Otherwise, they're just everywhere. And occasionally, even serenade back here on Earth. Ground control to Major Tom. Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. It may be YouTube, not narrated live by Walter Cronkite for a TV audience of millions, but these days, what is?
0: Commencing
4: countdown engines on.
0: That, unfortunately, is where we're going to have to leave things today. But we're eager to hear your thoughts on today's show. You can find us at BackstoryRadio.org. Our email address is there as are descriptions of all the shows we have in the works. Please take a moment and share your thoughts on those shows. Whatever you do, please don't be a stranger. This is ground control
1: to Major Tom. You've really made the great. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, Kelly Jones, Emily Gaddick, and Robert Aurangall. Jamal Milner is our engineer. We had help from Emily Charnock and Coley
3: Elhai. Special thanks this week to Alan Andres, Richard Buell, Carl Keyes, James Kolaris, Stephen Fox, and Bob Garfield, and to our voice actors for the Backstory ads, James Scales and Adam Brock.
0: Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day.
2: Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.
7: Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.